If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Old English is full of linguistic gems, many of which we would recognise in our speech patterns today, and others which have been long lost. In her new book, The Word Horde, Daily Life in Old English. Dr. Hana Vadeen opens up this linguistical treasure chest and reveals what Old English tells us about life at the time it was spoken. Our content director, David Musgrove, spoke to her to find out more and began by asking about where and when Old English was spoken and who exactly was speaking it. So Old English was spoken around from around 550 to 1150, roughly, in what's now England. It was a language that came from uh, immigrants from Northern Europe, and so sort of Northern Europe, uh, Northern Germany, and the Netherlands. So it those various languages became what we now call Old English um, in in England, sort of in the early medieval period. And did it replace uh, a, a pre-existing language in, in England? We don't really know um, if it replaced it per se, but because um, we have very little um, in terms of written records from the earliest time. Um, there would have been people speaking Latin, probably left over from when the Romans occupied Britain. But we don't know exactly who was how mu- how many people were speaking which languages in that very early period. It's a, it's a very sort of fuzzy fuzzy time period. But we start getting 
records uh, that are in Old English centuries after the migration would have taken place. Okay, and when we're talking about Celtic languages, those those would have been in play probably in in Brittany. Yeah, in addition to Latin, you would have you know the the languages that would eventually become Welsh and Gaelic, sort of those early Celtic languages. So uh, they were spoken in Ireland and and Scotland and and Wales. What what was what is now Ireland, Scotland, and Wales? Okay, so a, a complicated picture and a little bit hard to untangle, but gives us a sense about about. And what about uh, Old Norse? That language that was um, that that was a similar sort of language. Was that spoken at the same time, and was that mutually intelligible to Old English speakers? Yeah, Old English and Old Norse were spoken around the same time. Um, ever since no- Norse settlers and raiders started coming over to England, that would have been a language that they would have been familiar with. They. Um, there's been some work on whether they were mutually intelligible, and it seems like they were to a certain extent. Interpreters probably would not have been needed, um, but it didn't necessarily mean that people could speak both Old English and Old Norse, but they could get on well enough with each other in daily life that they'd be able to understand each other. Okay. Now, um, one of the things that I found very interesting in the introduction to your book um, and quite surprising was where you talked about just exactly how much surviving written text in Old English we have to go on. And it sounds like it's not very much. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, the linguist David Crystal, I think, phrased it as being around 30 novels length of of texts that we have in Old English. So it's about um, a bit over 3 million words of Old English. And some of those texts are, they're multiple copies of a text. So we'll have several, like several manuscripts with the same text written the way we have books now with the same text written in many books. But uh, the number is counting sort of how many words there like sort of unique sets of words that we have in Old English. When you go back to Old English, how easy is it to to make it out to understand it if you're coming at it completely fresh as a as a modern English speaker? Can you understand any of it? Um, it really depends on the text you're looking at. So if you're looking at um, the later texts that are more prosaic, um, like chronicles and stuff, you might be able to make it out a bit easier. Um, for instance, if I say the sentence, Hana is me nama, you might be able to figure that out as Hana is my name. It wouldn't be so strange to you. But then if you read the first, I don't know, several lines of Beowulf, they go, what we gardena and yer dagum. And that might be less comprehensible to you. So for the most part, you need to have studied Old English uh, grammar and vocabulary to have a handle on it. Um, can you just tell us what "hwat" means? Because that's the that's a, a very sort of archetypal Old English word, isn't it? The, the starting word of Beowulf. Yes. So "hwat" um, is just it's where our word "what" comes from. So it's just the H and the W swapping places. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion on what it means. Uh, translators of Beowulf have translated it in many different ways, including hark, listen, low, oh, what, 
hey, all kinds of things. But it's basically a word that gets your attention at the beginning of telling a story in this case, in the case of Beowulf. And does that tell us um, that Beowulf was written to be uh, to be read aloud then? Is that, is that sort of leading that conversation? Well, it was probably an oral story for some time before it was written down. So um, for whatever, we don't know what purpose the, the, the scribe had in writing down Beowulf, but it probably existed as a story for like maybe centuries before that was written down. Does Old English change much over time you mentioned that it's the period we're talking about is from about 550 through to 1100 that's that's quite a long time quite a long period um are there marked differences between the the start and end of that story well it's a bit tricky because most of the manuscripts that we have that contain old english are from the later period the earliest texts that we have in old english survive as runic inscriptions so they're very short we don't have a whole lot um, to go by and there isn't any substantial writing in old english until um, roman missionaries arrive in the sixth century but then there's actually fewer than 10 manuscripts of old english that have substantial material before the 10th century so when we're looking at what old english looked like earlier in the period it's a bit difficult to say um, there might be texts that survive from them, but they've been recorded by people in later centuries that might be following different sort of um, different a different grammar, different using different vocabulary. But broadly speaking, um, it becomes less reliant on um, on on word endings, so inflection as time goes on. And the word order becomes a bit more familiar to us. Now, one of the fun things in your book, the, the things that I really enjoyed, and, and I suppose what marks out as different from, from advertisers is the way you uh, try and help us understand society and daily life in the period through the, the source of words that, uh, that that were being used. I wonder, there's a, there's a few um, areas I'd like to discuss specifically, but before we do that, I, I wonder, there's a sort, sort of general questions. You talked about the poetry that we have, the surviving poem, poems that we have, The Wanderer, The Ruin, and Bale, and things like that. Um, do you get the sense that the speakers of Old English were particularly poetic sorts, or is that simply a reflection of the survival of the corpus that we have? I suspect that's more a reflection of of the corpus we have left. I mean, if, if everyday speech wasn't recorded as much as it is in our you know in society today, we have all kinds of different types of speech being recorded and and shared like on on social media and on the news and just like video recordings of people talking and so um if you're looking back at you know the year a thousand what we get recorded is what people decided was worth recording which was quite a process to to actually record words um so, yeah, what we're going to get is homilies, maybe religious texts, poetry, um, chronicles, but not so much just what we what people spoke in everyday conversations. Uh, one of the things I refer to in the book is when I'm trying to talk about uh, secular professions and what we don't have very many words 
for describing the secular professions like outside of the church. And there's this kind of uh, student dialogue that has survived that a Latin teacher wrote for his students. It's has kinds of, it has Latin, but it also has old English translations of the Latin and it, and it has phrases like, well, what do you do, farmer? And the farmer says, I'll, I have to get up and work and go to the fields. And, you know, my Lord is going to be mad at me if I don't do it. But it, it's the sort of conversation that you get in a language textbook where, you know, if I, when I took Spanish in school, we'd have these conversations that felt very kind of outside of what normal people would be saying to each other, but it was a learning, kind of a, a, a learning method. It feels like everything that's written down is perhaps, it's written down for a reason and it isn't just reflecting what people say in everyday life. I got it. Um, you're talking about Elfrich's colloquies there. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of one little way in, just a, li- a little scintilla of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of insight there. Um, what about humour? Can we see how they express humour through, through the writings that you've seen? Yeah. Um, well, it's humour is another difficult thing because what we find funny today might not have been considered funny then. There's nothing that says specifically like this is this was satire or this was a joke book or something like that. But I think one thing that we are pretty we feel pretty we can say for pretty certain that that, that it was supposed to be funny on some level are the riddles of the Exeter book, which are from the 10th century. And this is a there's a series of riddles. They don't have solutions. And they're largely their objects or things speaking in the first person. And you're meant to guess what that object is. And there's a lot of double entendre with those. There's perhaps different ways you could read them to that could be sort of naughty or not naughty and that's some of the humor that we can see in old english um okay and then before we move on um the title of your book uh it includes the word the word horde what 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 is a word horde a word horde um word horde is a word that appears seven times in old english it's always used in poetry and it describes a poet's stockpile of words and phrases that they would draw on so if you're an if you're a poet and you're reciting from memory it would be useful to have some words and phrases back of your head to sort of pull out and throw in while you're you're trying to tell a long story and so that's the idea of what the word hoard is is having this supply of useful language at hand, and and you draw on this supply as, as you go through the book to um, to try and illustrate some uh, some themes of, of social history as I've mentioned earlier. So, should we dive in and uh, and talk about food and eating? Sure. Um, so, what, so what can we learn about uh, the sort of food that people ate from from the surviving words? Do, can we can we take a stab at what were the main staples of the diet, for instance? Yeah, well, bread, um, bread usually accompanied by something else. The word um, 
the word bread appears in Old English, which is where we get the word bread from, but it actually means something more like food in the text. But we have the word hlav, which means it's where we get our word loaf, but it would have been bread. And I guess maybe you can get a feel for the importance of bread from the words we get for Lord and Lady, which if you look at the kind of old English origins of these words, um, is it means bread keeper or bread guardian. And that's what turned into the word Lord, which is obviously an important word to us today and was at the time as well. Um, so you get an idea of how significant bread was, certainly. Okay, so um, so bread is a, a, a one stage, a sort of a fairly generic word for for food generally. Yes. Does meat have the same meaning as we have today, or is that uh, a broader definition back in the, back in the old English period? Yeah, and the, so there are there are a lot of words like this in old English where they look like they're pretty much the same as what we know now, but then you look into it more, and it's actually a little different. So meta looks like where look like our word meat, but it would have referred to food in general. It didn't used to be as specific as, you know, flesh from an animal. It could have been just food. Can we learn anything about meal times from looking at the surviving words? Can you tell us anything about when food, when meals were eaten? Yeah, um, we really know mainly about when meals were eaten for like people of the church because that was the people of the church would have had prescribed times of day when they do prayer and when they when they are ha- are able to have food and stuff so we do get words in old english like undernmete which is something that i talk about a bit and undern refers to the morning and mete is food so on the surface it looks like it would just mean breakfast um, but it doesn't appear in texts that would really describe what everyday people in early medieval England would be doing. It's It appears as a translation for words in biblical sources. So it looks like a word for breakfast, but whether it was actually used as a word for breakfast by ordinary people is sort of something we don't really know. The main meal of the day was probably not at breakfast time. It was because you would wanted to get, if you're a farmer, you'd want to get an early start, get to work as soon as the sun is up. So maybe you'd have a meal sort of midday. Um, that would have been your main meal. And then maybe something later in the day before bed. But yeah, you wouldn't have like bacon and eggs and beans and toast sort of first thing in the morning can we can we talk a bit about dairy produce what um what would be um why would you want your milk to be skinked for instance so yes so the the word shenkan is just it means to pour uh, to, and it, its meaning has changed over the years so um shenkan in old english is is just pouring out a liquid but over time it came to mean um pouring out alcohol specifically. Um, and yeah, as you were saying, it it, it comes to be pronounced skink instead of, of shank. Um, so yeah, that's, 
that was that word appears in um, the leech books, so the medical texts of Old English, where it is giving simple instructions on how to make something. So it says, you know, heat a a shank of of milk and use that for your preparation. It's a very practical term. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Wevergenga, which is one of my my favorites. Um, it it means weaver walker, and so you think, what what animal would that be? A weaver walker, and it's a spider, and it's such a delightful way to describe a spider. It makes me like spiders more, just having that word exist. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And what about Cheese Week? You talk about Cheese Week in your book, which is a, a fascinating concept for a, a cheese enthusiast like myself. Um, was, there, was there such a thing? So the, the word I talk about is Cheesewitch, and that is something that has been thought to mean cheese week because of the way it's spelled. It looks like maybe it could be the same as chusa, which is cheese. It's the week following the last Sunday before Lent. So it's been suggested it was the last week that cheese would have been allowed before Lent, but it doesn't really make sense because it was true that medieval Christians would have been permitted to consume cheese on the Monday and Tuesday before Lent, but according to the sermon where the word appears, cheese which appears, it's actually the first four days of Lent, so it begins on Ash Wednesday. So that doesn't make sense because presumably 
then that would be when your fasting starts. So what people have theorized is that maybe it actually means there's there's a word that is very similar to cheese that means something like choosy or sort of being particular uh, about what you're eating. And so perhaps it could even refer to a time when you're being a bit choosy about like you're you're fasting, you're you're limiting what you eat. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be cheese week, it would be choosy week, which sounds kind of sad because it it is a nice idea to have a, have a cheese week, but really if it's a if that would mean that your intake of cheese was limited to just one week of the year, that would be pretty sad too. So I guess it, it works out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and staying on cheese, there's a, an interesting bit in your book about how you might prove guilt by cheese. Can you explain that? Yeah. So there's a word that appears several times in Old English that's coarsenad. And it's one of very, like, there's, it's listed along with some different ordeals that you could undergo to prove someone's guilt. Um, the other ones are perhaps more what you might expect. So it's like putting your hand and picking something up out of boiling water and then seeing how that heals afterwards, or even, you know, putting someone in a pool of water and seeing whether they sink or float or that sort of thing. So those you might've heard of before. Of course, that is a bit weird because it it just involves putting like an ounce of bread and cheese in your mouth. And if you choke, then you're guilty. And if you don't, then you're okay. So it's kind of hard to imagine that being a thing that would happen a lot, that that you, that you would choke on your bread and cheese. It's a strange trial. Um, there's been a lot sort of written on that, different ideas of what, what that could refer to. But um, I think what I find the most convincing is that this was a this was a trial that was meant for um, specifically for a, a priest in the church. So it would have not it would have been someone for whom taking an oath would be quite a serious deal. And so perhaps it was more symbolic of the way you know, the way you t- you take communion and how that would somehow go again, you know, like you'd be in danger of hellfire if if you if you were sort of misusing the communion or use misusing course not in a way when you're making an oath about whether you've committed a crime or not. Um so it it could be more of a psychological thing as you know when you're maybe when you're nervous, like you have trouble eating something. But we don't really know, and we also don't really know if this trial was used at all or if it was just written down by a couple people in in our law books. And yeah, so we, we don't really know how prominent this this trial was, but it is an interesting word and that it and it's interesting that it survives um, in what we have left of of old English. Okay, should we should we move on to time because uh, that's a, another uh, a section in your book about um, understanding of time for old English speakers. Um, as, as just to sort of kick us off, how was time measured in the early medieval period? There were obviously no wristwatches. Um, how how were people sort of aware of, of the passing of time? Do we know? Yeah, I mean, we don't 
we don't actually have a word for hour in English until like Middle English. So that's a later period. So people were not really measuring time in certainly not in minutes, but you know, not in, not even in hours. So probably people would have be referring to different times of day based on, you know, where the sun is. We have a lot of of words for sort of when when the sun is just rising or, you know, in the morning or evening or things like that, but we don't have words for to refer to, you know, 3 p.m. or something. Um, another interesting thing about time uh, shows up in in leech books, so the medical texts. So there are some some of the some of the instructions on how to make different remedies will tell you to stir something and say the Lord's prayer like three times or something. And this might seem on the surface as more of a religious thing, like maybe you need to recite these words in order for the remedy to work, but it also could be a way of measuring time because that's a pretty, that would be a pretty standard measurement if everyone knows the Lord's Prayer, like, and you know that it would take a certain period of time to say it. There is um, a really lovely word I like that's which means eye twinkle. So I guess that maybe could be a word that talks about a very short period of time. Um, the word bepriwan means to wink. And there's a word preotwil, which um, has been translated as sort of the time it takes for someone to wink. So that, I guess, could be a very short amount of time. So chunky up a bit in terms of, of periods of time, um, days of the week. Do we um, do we have the same days of the week now as, as they did uh, in the early medieval period as those of those words um, survived down to us? Yeah, those those words have stayed um, pretty much the same. They were named for different deities. So um, they were mainly named, well, they were named for deities of Northern Europe as opposed to Roman deities, which is why if you look at a lot of Romance languages, the words for the days of the week are not very much like our days of the week. But for instance, we have Wodenus Day, which is Wednesday, and that word comes from uh, Woden or Odin, who's a god of Northern Europe, like pagan pagans. So that's where that word comes from. And the other days of the week are similar. They they come from Frigg and Tyr and Thor. And can we make any observations on how people felt about days of the week from from the way they're called? Did, did they mean anything more to 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 them then? I mean, you know, you think about Woden's Day today. Obviously, we don't. Uh, um, there's probably not many listeners who would actively be celebrating Woden or Odin, but. Um, so for the speakers of old English where perhaps there was closer to, to, to the religions that were being talked about was did, did they have more meaning I suppose is what I'm wondering about um, for pretty much the whole old English period people would have been mostly Christian so I, I think that the people who are talking about Woden's Day wouldn't necessarily be thinking of yes you know the day that we worship Woden but perhaps 
it would, there'd be more of a, like an immediate connection that you'd make just because you, more people would have been familiar with that. But I'm not sure really how much um, your sort of everyday person would be aware of pagan deities of Northern Europe. Because that wouldn't be part of your, your daily life. Just think about months now. So are the months of the year broadly similar to, to what we have now in terms of the naming conventions? They're quite different, actually. We get some interesting month names that um, some of them are a little bit more familiar. Like you talk about Yale, sort of Yule. Um, although in Old English, there was sort of first Yule and second Yule. And that referred to the months of December and, and January. Um, but yeah, the rest of the month names are, are quite are quite different. Like one of my favorites is um, is Three Milcha Monath, which is Three Milkings Month, which is a very peculiar sort of sounding name. And it refers to the month of May. And people have theorized that maybe this was because there was like pasturing was so so abundant and like there you could have your cows giving you milk three times a day or something like that but we really we really don't know where these these names come from a lot of the old english um month names are a bit of a puzzle another month that is very much related to agriculture is august which is weed month which means weed month and I guess the idea there would be that that's a month where you have to do a lot of weeding. So you have, and then you have months like Solmonath, which depending on how you translate, it could either mean sunny month or muddy month. Um, and given that it's February, you can probably guess that it was muddy month. Well, that's that's an excellent segue into my last section on on weather. Um, so, but before um before we started recording this, my opening gambit to you was to start talking about the weather, um, which is obviously a preoccupation of the of people in Britain, certainly. Um, c- can we sort of make a stab at whether speakers of Old English in the early medieval period were similarly preoccupied? I mean, weather would have definitely been very important, probably more important in a way, because if, if you're doing a lot of your work outside as you would if you're a, f- a farmer and most of the you know most of the population would be doing some sort of farming so it would have been more important in a way um we because we don't really have any conversations recorded of what everyday people were saying to each other we don't know how much people talked about the weather then but it certainly comes up in poetry and in in the chronicles and in all sorts of sources. So, yeah, it was probably similarly important to them. The word weather is actually weather um, in Old English, so it's very similar. But something I find really fascinating is that there's a word that's unweather, and so that's like the negation of weather, and when we talk about weather today, we usually are, well, I, maybe it's just people in the UK. When people in the UK talk about weather, it's usually some sort of negative things. It's usually referring to bad weather specifically. But in Old English, there's a word that specifically means bad weather, and that's unweather. And weather on its own is not 
bad. So it could refer to sunny day or beautiful weather, something that you would appreciate a bit more. What was a weather token? Yeah, so that's another another example because I think when I when I first heard of weather token, I thought that it would be a token of weather would be something bad, like a storm cloud or something. But it actually, so weather token in the the context that it appears in, it actually is referring to a sign of good weather. So maybe a sun, like brilliant sunshine or something like that. So, uh, okay, you've answered my question. Did they have words for good weather? It sounds like they did. They did speak about good weather as much as bad weather. Yeah, there's a a lot of um, a lot of words to describe good weather, especially when, well, in they there's there's a lot of writing about paradise. So imagining what what paradise looks like, and you get these wonderful words like sunliti, which means sun beautiful, and sort of words like leav shadu, which is leaf shade. So you're imagining sitting in a beautiful sunny garden with maybe some delicate rays of sun filtering through the leaves. And it's it's very beautiful, um, although it does appear in poetry about paradise. So how much that was something that you'd experience in daily life, I don't know. Well, it sounds nice. Um, but but Britain is, of course, famously grey and rainy. So I presume that they did have lots of words for clouds and rain. Yeah, there's some words like wolkenjenast, which means like cloud collision, um, which is a great way to talk about stormy weather um, and the rushing of clouds. And yeah, so there, there's a lot. Of, and there are a lot of words to describe icy cold weather uh, as well so we've covered we've covered food we've covered time we've covered weather there's lots of other sections in your book that you uh, you look into various different aspects of sort of social life in uh, uh, in the period um I'm just wanting to wrap up though and as a scholar of an old old English yourself do you find in your um when you're chatting to people when you write that you're constantly mashing up words like uh, like they did and, um, and and putting two words together I don't know that I do that, but I, it's, I mean, there's so many words that I wish that we still used, um, now because they're especially animal words like hrathamus means adorned mouse. And that's such an adorable word to describe a bat and wavergenga, which is one of my, my favorites. Um, it, it means weaver walker and so you think what, what animal would that be a weaver walker? And it's a spider and it's such a delightful way to describe a spider. It makes me like spiders more just having that word exist. Dr. Hannah Vadim, thank you very much for your time. That was a, a fascinating insight into the world of Old English. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Hannah Vadim. The Word Horde Daily Life in Old English is published now by Profile Books. For more on the medieval world, head to historyextra.com forward slash medieval. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.